there were still people in my life who reminded me um, of Jesus that still reminded me that there was a God who loved me and encouraged me to continue seeking him. Well, hello everyone. My name is Doug and I'm a pastor here at Lord's Love Church and everything we do here is to help you receive and live out the love of Christ. Well, welcome to another episode, episode six, in fact, of our podcast segment called Stories from the Church, where we share stories from the church that are for the church. And our hope and prayer is simply this, is that God would use these stories to encourage and edify you in your daily walk with Jesus. Well, today's conversation is with Aaron Ma, who is husband to Greta and their together parents to their daughter, Ava. He's currently working as the senior product manager at Faber Technologies, and Aaron is quite involved here at LLC. He's serving in our congregation leadership team called ECC. He's also part of the Young Adults Ministry, also part of the leadership team for our life groups. So quite a few roles in terms of leadership and ministries that are directly involved in discipleship. We ended up chatting quite a bit also about faith in sports, even though that wasn't part of our original plan. We talk about other interesting topics like law and morality and the context we're living in right now. Aaron will also share about the cross sections between what he does for work and business and technology and how what he's learned there can help us in the church and ministry setting. Well, without further ado, here is my conversation with Aaron Ma. Hi, Aaron. I'm so glad we can have this uh, conversation uh, today. Thanks for having uh, me, Doug. Appreciate it. No, I'm glad we can have this conversation together. I, I was thinking about like when we first met and I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I, I, if my memory, again, as we talk about memory, right? Like if my memory serves me correctly, it must've been when we were at SFU together, like Simon yeah, Fraser. So. And mm-hmm. we bumped into each other at the physics wing. Yeah. Right by yeah, those. What were, what were you thinking when you, uh, when you saw me? Oh, I was just frazzled because I, I was late for class, probably. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I was either late for class or I was looking for a power power yeah. outlet for my laptop. Yeah. You know, in like, my mind, you're still that age. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're forever like forever 27, 26. Like 20, yeah. 26. I mean, you wouldn't have <laughs> been that old, but like, yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> but that's the thing. After a while, what is though, Doug still doing in university at 26? <laughs> That was my first thought. You know, working on my fifth PhD. That's probably... <laughs> <laughs> that's what I like to think in my own mind. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I remember like, I, I think I actually was looking for a power outlet, which always seems to be the case when your laptop's running out. Um, and for some reason, I, I knew we went to SFU together, but we never hmm. saw each other until that moment. Yeah. And then it solidified that. I'm like, oh, it's Aaron. Like that was my first official conversation. Right. Yeah. And then, you were in your fourth year? I think so. Okay. I think, I think so. Yeah. What were yeah. you? You were studying business. Studying business, uh, a joint major in uh, interactive arts and technology, uh, whatever that means. And uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say, you probably never saw me much because eventually I, I stopped attending as many classes. But I don't think that practice set in until a little bit later. I think first year I was still attending a good, good number of classes. Right. And for those listening, we're not saying skip class. Or, may, or maybe we are. Because <laughs> Aaron turned out you know, pretty well, oh, I think. Man. Yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm also Depends thinking- how you look at it. Yeah, I definitely have a bad, bad rap with some of uh, the young adults for never going to class. <laughs> I was talking to I was talking to one of like the the new young adults that just joined the the fellowship this year, mm-hmm. and we broke up into one of those small groups, and we were talking about university, 
And um, she was like, hey, yeah, so I heard, uh, heard you never attended class or did anything in university. I'm like, ah. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the whole story. <laughs> it's like, where did you hear that from? Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. But also, uh, I know we, we both enjoy the game of basketball. So that's oh, yeah. definitely something. You played throughout, you played in high school. Like you enjoy playing in high school. It was my first love. It was my first love. I got into basketball because uh, when I was younger, I have an older brother. Mm. And um, as you do when you're elementary, you just want to do everything your older brother does, right? Mm. Like he was into track. And so I wanted to be faster because he was so fast. Mm. And uh, we both have our growth spurts pretty early. Like I've been this height since I was 12. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so being fast wasn't a big problem because right. we were so much taller than other kids and then he tried out for basketball and um the next year i also tried out for basketball mm. and uh yeah i'm not sure he made the team but i did and uh it just stuck with me man mm. it's one of those things where uh, you you find something that you're kind of mediocre at and you feel like there's potential for you to get better. Right. And um, <laughs> you know how people talk about like social media and like the dopamine drip. Right. Like every time right. you get a notification, you get a little thrill from like, oh, I got to like whatever right. that is. The, 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 fa- me, the phantom buzz or the ringing in your pocket, like that kind of. Exactly. Yeah. For me, that's like making a bucket mm. or like crossing someone over. It's like you do it once and it's like there's just a thrill to it. You got to do it again. Yeah, I I think like the times we played together, you've got the up and under, like like, like down the pretty little, well. Uh... The, the little <laughs> pump fake in the post. Yeah, yeah. And then the guy jumps and falls for it, and then you just go right under and do that little layup. It's so yeah. satisfying. It, it also feels a little like um, feels a little selfish because you're like, <laughs> I embarrassed you. <laughs> Getting faked out never feels good. Yeah. You know, I was talking about that, like, like basketball is, a, it is a strange game because it's a team game, but it's sure. also individualistic because it's only one person with the ball at the time. And one person can dominate. Yeah. Like as you, as we see in the NBA with star players and, yeah. you know, like one person can literally take over the game and the other four in the team are kind of, you know, I'll just sec, I'll, I'll just set four picks for you. Like <laughs> and I run around. Right. And as I grew up, that became more and more, as I grew up and understood the game a little bit more, that became more and more of what excited me was like making an extra pass so that someone had just like a sweet look at the basket Mm. or setting a hard pick and someone, you know what I mean? Like the the plays, the multi-touch plays to be able to execute on that. Yeah. Those are fun. So you play guard. Like you enjoyed like, like, like point guard, shooting guard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I only played in grade eight. Right. Right. And then I tried out for the grade nine team and the coach at the beginning of the second tryout, he told the team that, you know, if you want to be part of this team, then basketball has to be your number one priority. Hmm. It can't be grades. It can't be church. It can't be anything. It has to be, be basketball, everything that you live and breathe. Right. And, uh, and I felt like I had to make a choice because I didn't want to be half in, half out. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to, to drop basketball and uh, oh. focus on school. Yeah. yeah. 
Did so, you feel- to be honest, like great, I mean, like grade eight basketball, you can say like, oh yeah, you, you play guard, point guard. It's like, well, you kind of just, grade eight basketball is a whole bunch of people just running around. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot less organized than I, you know what I mean? Than, right, right. Than you would like to think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still at that stage at least. Was there, was there a bit of a grieving process? Like when in grade nine, when you're like, ah, I'm going to decide to pursue school or my grades and what I think is more important than basketball. Was there a bit of grieving or are you kind of like, actually, let, let that go pretty, pretty easily? Nah, I think I'm still grieving it now. <laughs> <laughs> what could have been? What could have been? No, like, uh, I think grade nine was a pretty formative year for me because like I was mentioning why I got into basketball is it gave me a source of identity, Mm. right? Like by the time I was in grade seven, I was, you know, one of the best players, if not the best player on, on the team. And then moving into grade eight, I all of a sudden came from like a elementary school that was predominantly white, Mm. which also, yeah, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit. But it was probably in white uh, to a high school that's probably Asian. So a big cultural shock. Um, being a now a smaller guy mm. on a basketball team by grade nine, I knew I wasn't going to be the fastest. And I knew that I can. I didn't have an advantage on height, and a lot of my game was uh, getting on the inside. Mm. And so, like, I, I didn't feel like. I could excel at that anymore. And if I needed to, you know, build my game back up and like really develop a shot, a jump shot or, or what have you, that was going to take a huge commitment. And so like basketball kind of fell off my like roster of options to be a source of identity. And then a few other things, a few other things kind of um, fell off my radar or sorry, not fell off my kind of felt like they were robbed from me and uh, ended up turning turning to God. Yeah. I, mm. Actually, it, because those kind of key components of my identity were what I felt like were stripped away. And, um, I really started to question, you know, life. I started to have those kind of harder questions like, well, right. yeah. How does this all fit in? What am I doing here? Yeah. So you had this, these questions when you're in grade nine, like grade nine, 10, which is pretty like, like, like both of us, you know, have been involved with young adults or, you know, discipleship and talking about high school and university, they've been the most, we believe anyways, like some of the most formative years. So you had that pretty young early on as well in grade nine, 10. Um, And you mentioned how like those things had to do with your identity. Mm -hmm. And when they're stripped often, we could turn to other things in high school. Like (laughs) there's many other things we could turn to. Sure. But, But what was it that led you towards faith in that, in those moments? Like, was it your family? Was it the church community? Was it certain friends or? Yeah. I mean, I grew up with my mom being a pretty devout Christian and my, and my dad being very anti-Christian. And so from a very early age, I needed to wrestle with that. Right. I needed to wrestle with the idea of like, is the friction that is in the family, um, is it worth it? Like, is there something to this faith? does church matter? Does this Jesus person even exist? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think 
when I started grasping for those other things and filling that hole with basketball, with um, this sense of um, being, you know, athletically capable or popular or funny, uh, and then eventually um, filling that with a relationship, the church component, the God component fell more and more into the background. But when those things got stripped away, um, there were still people in my life who reminded me um, of Jesus that still reminded me that there was a God who loved me and encouraged me to continue seeking him. Yeah. And so in that kind of tumultuous time, you know, I, I threw up a prayer. I, I kind of came back to um, question, you know, all these other things have not panned out. Is there something here that is real, that is, uh, you know, is a source of, of rescue? Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Because I'm thinking in those moments, like God often brings people into our lives to have those kind of conversations and it's the lining up of like what's happening uh, with our identity and what we're wrestling with, like what we thought was important, but then, and in the moment you might still think it's important. Like when it's taken away from you, like very few of us are, you know, I'm willingly going to let it go. Sure, you know, kind of kicking screaming. Like I definitely have my, 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 my story of that. What, what, actually, got you, what got you into basketball? How did that start? What for you? got me into basketball? Yeah. Wow. You know, what was fat? That, that's a great story. Uh, great, great question. Uh, what brought me into sports in general? Like, so, okay. Kindergarten, I'm going to go all the way back. All right. K- kindergarten, I was here in Vancouver. Grade one, that's when my parents divorced. Okay. And I, I my, my whole family, my brother and my mom, we moved back to Hong Kong. Yeah. I moved back. Like my mom moved back, but I moved with my mom uh, because we didn't really have any other family here in Vancouver. Okay. So for in kindergarten, I was here. Spoke mostly English. Uh, grade one, went to a public school, a Cantonese-speaking public school oh, in wow. Hong Kong. Yeah. And that was quite a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was, I, I, like, the, the, to be honest, the only class in the first semester I re- did well in was English. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> because they were teaching English. I can imagine. But everything else, it was just a language barrier. And I had no idea what was going on. That was back. I don't know if they still do this in Hong Kong. They still ranked the students. Hmm. So like you sit in your ranking. Wow. So like number one would sit. I can't remember where number one sat. Like and then, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I got. I remember one recess. I got in trouble because I walked down this hallway and then the teacher pulled me over and said, "Can't you read the sign?" And I said, "No, I actually can't read the sign because yeah. <laughs> it was in Chinese." But yeah. it said staff only. Uh, so then I walked in, I went to the principal and the principal said a whole bunch of things that I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> and then basically I got punished. My mom got a letter and then, yeah, know, yeah, uh, that kind of stuff. But then I, I think the, the, the funny thing is, is that um, I actually ended up at the very last semester, ended up being top of the class. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a little bit of a story. Like I, I, Totally. That's I, I got, had a tutor and I, and then, but the thing is after that one year, we moved back to Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then when we moved back to Vancouver, I was placed in the ESL. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I, this is not, and when you're so young, like when, yeah. you're, when you're five, six years old, you're just absorbing. 
yeah. yeah yeah that just speaks to how malleable children are right yeah 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 so so uh great so i was back for grade two and that's where i met my long-term long-time friend brad yeah yeah brad he's played on our panda sport team yeah. shout out to downtown nuns <laughs> like, downtown nuns uh and yeah so i've been friends with him since grade two and he has an athletic background his parents okay. put him into a ton of sports like so being like a my first friend in elementary that I re- really remember, like he yeah. brought me to baseball. His, his family took me to swimming lessons. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basketball. That's when I started playing because uh, we enrolled in something called the real basketball league. And it's still around okay. RBL cool. is still around. And nice. so that was the first time I, 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 I played. Uh, yeah. I remember in grade two, I had a really intense coach, <laughs> you, you know, like, <laughs> Great you know great i remember there's a lot of yelling a lot of fun yeah. yelling a lot of fun yelling, like kind of like you know intensity you know that kind of thing so yeah I, I think it was uh that and then here's another thing too we uh growing up to my my cousin who's older than me i was in high school and he was reading a lot of the uh chinese comic like that chinese comic the basketball mm. comic okay uh, yeah and, slam and slam yeah yeah and we had a oh, basketball yeah. hoop in the back nice. and that's that's when uh like Obviously, Michael Jordan, you know, he's still big oh, yeah. now. Michael yeah. Jordan were, was playing. Allen Iverson was coming into the scene. So, like, uh-huh. he was practicing uh-huh. all those moves. Nice. On, like, you know, a little kid, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, Doug, let, let, let me post up on you. I'm like, I don't, okay, whatever. Yeah. You know. uh, but it, it, so that's just kind of like, it was my way of bonding with, with him. Uh, awesome. My way of hanging out with friends uh, yeah. after school and, Hey, tell me a little bit more about um, how you decided to do this marathon you completed recently. I thought it was funny how you were saying that you can run. <laughs> Says the guy who literally ran around the city. <laughs> oh, you know what's funny about that is, uh, okay, so uh, there's something called the Fall Classic. Yeah. and That's a September they, half? The, uh, I think it's usually October, October, November. It's out at UBC. Okay. And it's, it's, it's a half, but there's three events. It's the half, it's the 10K and also the 5K. Okay. So you can also sign up for all three. Oh, wow. It's called a hat trick, which ah. ends up adding to 36.1K. Right. Right. So it, honestly, this year, I've just been running to keep myself accountable. And yeah. because I was indoors so much because of yeah. COVID and, you know, all the leagues, everything is, you know, not happening. So I signed up for it just so I could. Uh, I could keep myself accountable and I didn't really start running until maybe three years ago for the run for H2O mm-hmm. a whole bunch of us from church. We signed up for the 10 K fundraiser. Yeah. And I remember at one point I was trying to chase, he's got to be at least a 60 year old man. And I, and I could not <laughs> catch up to him. Yeah. I could. And he didn't look like he was even trying. Right. Like that was the thing. And I remember at that point, I'm like, there's a pride issue, I think, probably <laughs> like, you know, I'm not going to let this happen. But it also was, was humbling just thinking like running isn't just running. Yeah. Like just how much it mirrored faith for me yeah. and, and the, the walk of life and about pacing and running according to the pace that we're like called to. Yeah. It's not comparing yourself to others and just how technical it can be. Mm. Uh, so and a marathon from I think a marathon has always been on the bucket list, but not seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, it would be nice to do, but then I don't know. To be honest with you, I finished it on Monday. Uh, it was quite a spiritual journey. Yeah. Like, I was kind of running through this. I was running through the city and then praying. But huh. also, when, when I ended, I was like, I kind of felt like I finished something quite significant. 
mm. and kind of passing into uh, like a sense of accomplishment, but also a sense of uh, fulfillment, mm-hmm. uh, not for really any medal or certificate or whatever, just simply saying that I was able to go through that and, and God gave me the ability to do it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, just a sense of thankfulness. Yeah. Um, what is, uh, maybe this is more technical, but what do you do to ensure that you don't get injured? Especially when you're kind of running into the abyss. Like, how do you balance pushing hard? Mm. But especially once you get to distances where it's like, my body hasn't gone here before. How, you know, like, how do you right. ensure that something doesn't go off the, the rails there? There are a few things. I think part of it was, again, trusting my training plan. So in the read up, like this plan should get you to 42.2. Like that's okay. what, that, so there's that, that aspect. But also, yeah. even though I was really hungry, I technically brought enough fuel. Like I followed the fuel plan of mm. like what, how many gel packs I'm supposed to eat, like what, how much water. Okay. I, I planned out a route uh, where I could refill water. So I oh, knew nice. fueling, you know, yeah. I, I had it, um, had enough, even though I was feeling hungry, maybe I could have brought more. Uh, but then there's also an aspect of this reading up on s- different runners mm. and just saying after you train for a while, you have enough to make it. It's whether how it's whether how fast you could do it. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's that, that aspect too. It's like, well, I have nothing to prove. The only goal I have is to finish. Yeah. So in some sense, it is to finish well and well meaning is the best that I can. So there's that aspect too of, of, of pushing and reading my body. Like, yeah. like, like you're, you're on race day, you're not supposed to wear or eat anything that you haven't before. Okay. Interesting. Right. So yeah. I've, I've worn that shirt. I've worn those shoes, those shorts. Kind of like a, kind of like pregnancy. Right. Which, which I've gone through. <laughs> like, <laughs> Talk about well, body transformation. <laughs> Well, actually, you know, on, on, on that note with pregnancy, I, I remember talking to Jess and I'm sure you, you've had a similar conversation with Greta um, and how she was just mentioning when we had our first with Cohen, how the yeah. body just takes over. Like it's, it's okay. a weird kind of feeling where we know what we're supposed to do. And for me, I don't know about you, like the, the prenatal class kind of, you know, <laughs> when, when, it, when it was go time, like all of it kind of just, you know, went out the yeah. window. Like, I don't remember yeah. how many seconds to whatever, like, yeah, totally. I, I just remember I'm supposed to hold her hand and, you know, Hey, t- today's Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I find that, I mean, I don't know if I find that interesting or fascinating or, or, or whatnot. Like, what, what was that like growing up for you or what are your, pra- like, are there any practices or not? Like, did your family, like, turn off all the lights and pretend you're not home? Like, like one of those I, I just found out two days ago that this year is the last year that you can legally do fireworks. Mm. Yeah. Which I guess was kind of surprising because I wasn't sure it was ever legal to do fireworks. <laughs> but then also, like, in an era where, you know, like decriminalization and stuff like that has been kind of top of mind. It's interesting that that's the route they take with, yeah, with fire, fireworks, which is like, if you make it illegal, and I could be wrong about like the severity of how illegal it is. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. But it just feels like, okay, well, where's the standard there? Like it's, is it not okay to have fireworks, but okay to smoke a joint? Yep. 
you know what? I'm gonna let that tr- thought trail, but <laughs> that's a big one. Yeah, that, that's well, that's interesting because I, I think it was firecrackers that's been banned. Okay, like, interesting for the longest time, and I think yeah. it's because people were. I'm not sure if I mean, I'm not sure if it's more explosive, but people were doing worse things with them. Like they were making their own, like like joining a whole mm-hmm. bunch of firecrackers together to make like. Yeah like a dynamite stick or something like, so it's like something like, I think it was yeah. more dangerous than that end. Yeah. Fireworks. It's a strange to me. It, it's not legal most of the year, except for certain days, like Halloween mm. from, from my understanding, because they're not selling it any other part times of the year. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, you know, in our society, like right now, like as you talk about that, like, it's weird. Like, so I can't, like, I can't light off, my fireworks but i can light off you know light up my joint <laughs> or yeah. like 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 my you know and, and and that's the city and the time and culture that we're in which is very confusing uh, because we're, we're like what are we saying is right and wrong uh, mm-hmm. how do we draw that line and and people will push back like is the law the definition of what what is right and wrong uh, that yeah that's the angle that's kind of been the most fascinating for me is what is the purpose of the law is it to indicate what is it to indicate what we should or should not do or is it to regulate it if that makes sense does the law become a reflection of the notion of like a moral law like the good and the bad or is it just an instrument of if you put a law in place then um it will encourage or discourage a certain behavior regardless of morality mm-hmm. like if you put a law in place that legalizes hard drugs then that will benefit society for whatever reasons but but we still think hard drugs are bad like does that how does that fit in the whole framework of i guess modern day law i don't know yeah, that's interesting. So what what you're saying is that even though we might make it legal, there's there might be a part of us to still believe that it's bad for us. That's not something that we should be doing. I mean, to be honest, like I only really reintroduced myself to the conversation around decriminalization recently, and it seems like there's some sentiment of that, which is that you know what you decriminalize, you recognize as. Um, kind of a, a facet of just culture or society that uh, is potentially harmful, but to be able to uh, control it by making it legal is the lesser of the two evils. Yeah. So you're kind of acknowledging like, mm. okay, well, humans are broken. <laughs> what do we do with that brokenness? Do we, you know, make a hard stop and punish people for every time that, they express that brokenness in a certain way or do we leave that door open and then have other facilities to channel them into xyz yeah and i was, i think it was on the news last week where they're talking about having a safe injection site so down to yale town mm-hmm. in downtown okay. vancouver yeah and, and it was fascinating because there's a group of people that really believe it's so you ask a group of people it's very much needed it's important mm-hmm but don't set up the site here in our territory. Sure, yeah. 
So, which is kind of like not in my own backyard, mm-hmm. whatever the acronym mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there's an understanding of like, there is a need uh, and how there is brokenness in the city and we're meant yeah. to help people. But then when it crosses like our own personal yeah. space, then, then it gets uh, like our, our opinions yeah. kind of change. Right? At that point, some people will say, well, okay, actually we don't right. want it anymore then. So does that mean you don't think it's important to help them right. or you're just saying we right. just don't want to hear like which one? I, is I was just thinking like, this is an interesting evolution of the law in terms of, okay, like maybe theologically there was the law in the Old Testament and then Jesus fulfills the law. But then a lot of, I think the rhetoric is that um, the Western legal system is based on some of like the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or like there there's some history there that anchors it back to the Old Testament how do we bring that paradigm of the law being anchored to the old Testament into the newer paradigm of like, love God, love your neighbors. Like what is the implication of Jesus fulfilling the law on the legal system? Wow. That's a big question. (laughs) No, that, no, no, that's a really big question. I don't know if you're tracking with me, but. I, 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 um, that, that reminds me again of a conversation I was listening to how many, maybe this is more pertaining to the U S but many would believe that the United States is a Christian nation, sure, a Christian country, but many of those, uh, many of those leaders and uh, church leaders and pastors would say they don't agree with that. So okay. maybe like, so in some sense they're, they're seeing like the nation might be, formed around the 10 commandments and the golden rule, as you said, uh, but it's not just about for being formed around those rules and those laws and understanding what it is, but it's more about living it out part, which is what you mentioned about Jesus and, you know, love God, love others. And mm-hmm. how, I guess maybe in the church level and the ministry level, we've been pushing into the direction of is more about living, you know, living mm-hmm. it out and not less about our, we, even what we read or even our just just our foundation what was formed a long time ago it's actually how it's been applied mm-hmm. in our in our everyday life that's the most important mm-hmm. so i found mm-hmm. it fascinating that like the, the people was view us and maybe you know even some extent of canada as a christian yeah. nation yeah uh, but now we you know we we're wanting to take that out of our national anthem right you know right. Uh, make, make everything I, I don't know um non-biased maybe like we don't want any religious tone to anything yeah yeah i just i think it's like a fascinating thought experiment for me if jesus um was here today he would have already filled the law what would the law look like today you know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's no more old Testament. Well, that's not true. You know, there's like, <laughs> I've right. fulfilled the law. So like, are there any more laws? Like if Jesus was to start a, the U S all over or Canada all over <laughs> the new Jerusalem. Right. I mean, I guess it's kind of hard to divorce that from the idea that like God recreates, um, a new heart in his, in his creation. And it's a new creation. And like, I guess that holistically is the sense of it, but as we try to build God's kingdom here on earth, it's like, what amount of law do we need? And what should those laws be? Because, you know, 
we're not a Christian nation to the extent that there's a reference to Jesus in the law, right? Which kind of devoids the idea of like loving God or, you know? Yeah, I, I maybe it falls into our human tendencies to want to define too, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I think in the Old Testament, especially and in the New Testament too, it's like, you know, tell me, uh, like, what does it mean to live out my faith? You know, yeah. How do I know I'm loving God? How do I know I have God? How do I, and, and, and as a human tendency, rightly or wrongly, so to want to define and want to know yeah. the, the boundaries. Yeah. And, and there's good and bad in that because there's good meaning like, Hey, I, this is how I know I'm living out my faith and how I'm honoring God. But then there's mm-hmm. part of us too, like the broken side of me. That's like, Hey, that's how far can I really push? Right. Mm. Like that's kind of like the edge of like, how far can I really go <laughs> before it's really <laughs> bad? But I feel yeah. like there's two ways of understanding the law uh, on that end versus I, I think, I, and I think our, our church has been trying to go in this direction in, in terms of like, well, how did Jesus did it? How did he live? Uh, how did God intend creation to be from the yeah. very beginning in the garden all the way till now? Like, I think there's an aspect of us trying to, uh, chase and and to go back to the garden times mm-hmm. and, and to understand what that really meant and how god created things uh, yeah. to be and how the the rhythms that god has created everything the earth and us included like how he originally intended creation to be that is how we're meant to be living mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. we're when we're out of step with that that's when more like chaos mm. uh, and, and pain and brokenness and suffering is even more realized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here's the thing though, as you mentioned, like even our own like government and our own laws, like we're not thinking from that angle though. Like we're really trying to define a human flourishing for our, for for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if that's the, like if that's the case, then we'll, there's, it's always going to be different. Yeah. Right. Because there's no, like you mentioned that moral standpoint, like there's not that one standpoint and we're all just, well, what I think is best. Mm -hmm. Then how can we agree on anything? Yeah. Um, Right. 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 Because then like if we if we assume that the Old Testament law was the purpose of it was ultimately to point us to Jesus. But our our secular laws or the laws that we live by now do not have that same purpose, then you're kind of left with a shell of the purpose of the original intention. And that shell is gonna be exposed to, you know, um the whims of people or like the the ebbs and flow of culture or whatever becomes popular in the moment. Right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's for, that for sure. And I think that's where the law, the understanding of the law has evolved, how it was meant for good, mm-hmm. but, but then it became all these laws that there's something for us to do and a checklist versus how it's meant to point us to a relationship. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of us. I think humanity distorting the law uh, as well. Hey, do you know any lawyers? feel like uh i'm just kind of talking over my butt here so i'd love to <laughs> that should be your next guest someone who uh yeah who practices law and has an intimate understanding of how the legal system works and how it's evolved over time i'm sure it'd be a fascinating topic just like but, I, would, I would love to like talk with someone who's jewish hmm. the understanding of the old testament you know <laughs> i think that'd be such a fresh perspective yeah i think you're giving me uh, new ideas well, we'll see if we can get a lawyer on to uh, have a conversation yeah. with the lawyer. I know, I know a few. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. But for, yeah. for you, like what you do do though, uh, you're a senior yeah, product manager. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I so, am. I am a senior product manager. Yes. Yeah. Those are all words. At Faber Technologies. At Faber so, Technologies. Yeah. So so what? Yeah. So what does that mean? Like what what what's on the what what's your role? Like what's your what are your responsibilities? Sure. Yeah. Like maybe a little bit about the company is, and this is not a plug for them, but it might just be helpful for the conversation. They are a company that connects construction companies to a labor force, right? So I guess our kind of standing sales pitch is it's the the Uber of the construction company or, you know, the Tinder. (laughs) We're we're matchmaking, right? Um, Construction projects will often fall behind um i think they're pretty well known unfortunately for that for uh, completion dates to be much further out than the original estimates and so often you'll want extra help you want extra labor or or skilled um trades people working your projects just because you're in a crunch part of the industry and construction right now is that there isn't a lot of young talent. If you think your average high school graduate or university graduate, like your top five jobs are probably going to be in healthcare, software development, lawyer, doctor, you know, things that either give you some, um, comfort of being in a back office or kind of culturally have some prestige to it. And I think because of that, um, trades workers and construction workers are high in demand. That's sort of the problem that we're trying to fix is of the demand pool that there is, of the people who are in the trades, how do we connect them to the right projects as well as how do we train up the next generation, right? So my role within the company as a product manager is helping the company define what we should be building as a software company, right? So at the end of the day, this is all software. This is an app that the construction company has, is an app that the workers have. Um, But within that app, it's facilitating different interactions, different services, trying to create value for whoever's using it on both sides. But the world's your oyster, right? Like software is one of those beautiful things where you're almost literally creating out of your imagination, right? Your, your bounds are, are, it's not like you're taking lumber and constructing something that is concrete, that is in real life, right? Software is, is all just abstraction and, and lines of code and what you try to build to and, what the right solutions are? Are you solving something that's worth solving? Is there a real pain point there? That's my, that's my job. My, my job is to validate, make sure that everything we build has value and that that value is both reflected from a business perspective. So like an ROI, uh, but both also from a worker's or uh, a user's perspective, like this makes my life better in some way, in some tangible way. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how, how do you come about, come about the problem solving side of things? Like, do you have a, a group of you that kind of think, well, is this problem worth, worth solving? Or you, or you go and look out there and have interviews and surveys and be like, hey, what issues are the construction companies having? And then yeah. you kind of come back 
together and be like, hey, how are we going to solve this uh, as yeah. a software company? Yeah, that's a good question. Users got, have to be at the heart of that problem, right? So it has to be from conversations uh, with the users themselves. Um, surveys are another great way of getting kind of quantitative um, feedback from your user base. And that can act as a source of inspiration. But there's other sources of inspiration too that you want to validate against, right? Like your analytics will show you different holes in the way that your product works, right? Like maybe um, you have a big part of your audience falling off at a certain stage of the, the journey, or maybe you are um, bleeding money through a certain process that could be automated by technology. Those are all potential opportunities to assess. Uh, so then being able to build a, really build a business case against it, right? Like how much would it cost for us to solve this? Um, how sure are we that this problem is real, right? And then what is our opportunity cost? Like what is our short list of five to 10, you know, big ideas that we'd be tackling right now? And which one do we want to take a bite out of first? I'm thinking that's a lot of creativity, and a lot of problem solving and innovation. So how do you navigate those waters? Because as I think about a software company, I think of, well, again, I'm not, not a software guy. I, I don't know the lingo and all that. I'm thinking about you take and form a, um, you're kind of taking what the client wants and then you're maybe forming something physical, whether it's an app or, or whatever. Uh, but then there's a lot of innovation involved. So like, would you consider yourself to be an innovative before this role? Or has it been kind of like trained over the years and creativity and uh, sure it sounds like it's, there's a lot of areas where it's good where you have a lot of uh, there's no boundaries because like you said the world's your oyster but at the same time like you have to produce mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and you have to have some tangible um, uh, workings to 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 your role yeah so how I manage problem solving or innovation yeah like how how do you come about that and how, how has that grown in terms of the problem solving and innovation side of you? Yeah. I think as you become more familiar with technology, you get uh, a better understanding of where the, the edges are. Like you get a better understanding of, okay, there's certain topics or solutions that um, if you were to try and tackle right now, you would be building for the next six months before you got anything out the door, right? So understanding a sense of effort and what your bounds are will give you some parameters as to where you focus your your problem solving, but also paying attention to uh, paying to attention to where those in, in that industry moves. So a good example is like machine learning or automation, right? Like so, machine learning is big old buzzword, you know, machines, AI is going to take over the world, right? Um, five to 10 years ago, it would have been near impossible for a startup company to be tapping machine learning in any kind of cost-effective way. But you fast forward that to today, um, there's actually a good number of service providers who will um, help you spin up like a machine learning model and I've done like I've done some of that myself, where you know, it's really accessible, right? And it kind of opens your doors. It opens the doors to people who are aware of it, 
and who understand how to apply that technology to different problems. Um, so yeah, so one, one part of inspiration is understanding uh, what the, the potential infrastructure solution kind of affords for. And then the other part is um, getting better at understanding people, getting better at empathizing, right? And some of that is just conversations like these where you get to dig deep. Be able to dig deep into a, a user's shoes is a lot of fun to be able to understand what are the problems that we are solving right now and what are some that we weren't even aware of or how are they using our product in a way that we didn't expect and we can you know, tweak it in a way that um, makes it even easier or makes them want to share it with someone else. Um, so the, the person-to-person -person connection, I think, is a really part, important part of innovation um, to the extent of, you know, like maybe you're, you're um, prototypical, I think is where I'm looking for, your prototypical mastermind of innovation might be like a Steve Jobs character, you know, and he's pretty famous to have done zero user testing, zero user research. Right. But that was because he was in the consumer electronics space forever, right? Mm -hmm. Like he had such an intimate understanding of how people used computers, um, the industry space, the technology, like all those things that he can kind of project that understanding into the future and start to build solutions that, uh, that users didn't even know that they wanted, right? Yeah, so. No, that's, that, a long -winded, that, that's a long-winded answer. I'm not sure I answered your question, but I said some words, so. <laughs> you, have it. you know what? What I love about whenever we have a conversation, it's just how organic it is. Yeah. Now we can just connect and just, we can just speak uh, in terms yeah. of our own experiences and the story uh, that's happening in, in our lives. And, yeah. and like we, we serve in ECC, so English Congregation Committee together. Yeah. Uh, you're part of the Young Adults uh, Leadership Team as well. And also... Life groups, we serve in that together mm. as well. And I think what I've admired over the, uh, the times that we've served together in those settings is your innovation. That's why I asked that question. It, okay. it, it comes from an innovative and uh, inspiring uh, side of things where you, you see things of not just how it is now, but where it can be. Mm -hmm. I think there's mm -hmm. an overlap of your faith and what you do at your work sure. uh, as wow. well. Thanks for that um, encouragement, man. Yeah, like, like that, that's really how, how I see it. Uh, so in terms of like you, maybe pushing the boundaries isn't the right word, but in some sense like you see where it is now and how much more beautiful it can be. So you have this vision. Uh, and, and if you don't have this vision, you ask the right questions of how we can get there. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I guess my next question is, as we're talking about this, is how, what you just mentioned in the work and business and app and software space, like, what are things, I guess, as a church, we can learn from that? Like in, in discipleship, you know, that's a very yeah. big question. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. a, huge, it. that's a huge question. Like how, what question. are things we can learn from that world? Yeah. And how the church can be innovative in our discipleship, in our ministries? How can we have vision? Sure. How can we understand the needs? Yeah, like all, all that. There's a, there's a great term in, you know, product management, and that's called product market fit. And that's the notion of like, does your product have a fit in the market right is it oh. is it um a product that solves a unique a new unique problem 
it solves a problem in a unique way for a substantial amount of people. Okay. Maybe that's a paraphrase. I don't a bad paraphrase. I don't know. <laughs> but if I were to, if I were to translate that to church, um, it's the question of, it's a question of if LLC were to disappear today, how many people would be really disappointed? Mm. Like super disappointed. And that's a question that we've asked our users. Like if Faber were to no longer exist on a scale of one to five, how, dis- how, how would you feel? You know, five being super disappointed and one being doesn't matter. If you have a resonance, if you're solving a problem, if you're a part of people's lives in a significant way, such that without you, um, it would be a significantly different lifestyle or significantly different whatever have you, then you know that you are onto something. You have product market fit, right? Um, so I guess like another way of rephrasing it is like, why do people come to LLC? Why people? Yeah, why do people yeah. come to church? Not maybe not just like LLC as a local church, but why do people come to church? What is the function that the church serves today? Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure I even have like a great pulse on that, right? <laughs> I, I don't, wouldn't even know where to put my thumb on it. There's probably a good spectrum of answers. Uh, but if you were to ask me that question as to like the the 50, 60 regular attendees that we have on a Sunday, uh, I would tell you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. And I think that'd be a good starting place, right? That's a great question. I, I remember asking something similar uh, in our leadership uh, on, a, on a board level. And it wasn't meant to be, it was meant to be more thought provoking than than anger <laughs> or, or, or whatever, or whatever else. I'm not saying you know, there was an anger response, but I'm just saying like, I think there's a negative side of that question. Like, you know, what, what would our neighborhood like here in Vancouver, South Hill specifically, mm-hmm. you know, and our, the people that come here, like why, uh, like what would they be missing? And I think there's a part of fear of asking that question in our ministries. Mm-hmm. Like maybe part of it is like, we want to belong and we want to be liked. Uh, but there's also another side of that. It's like, if we can't answer that question, then, there's an identity issue back to what we talked about, you know, in the very beginning, like, like, well, what have we been doing as a church? You know, what is our role as a church? If we, you know, if people don't want to come here or don't feel like this is valuable, then that speaks into our identity, whether it's a collective group of people as a community or also in but also individually uh, as well. So I guess the question that comes from that question you asked is why don't churches ask that question more often? And maybe Mm. it's because we don't want to know the answer to it. Mm. Uh, that, that, that could be uh, a part of it. Uh, but I also think uh, that, um, again, we don't, we don't know, want, want to know the answer to it. But also maybe it'll take too much effort to find the answer as well, where the churches have so many other ministries going on that we mm. feel like we need to be busy doing, but we're not mm. asking the right questions. Mm. We kind of, maybe we feel like we're Steve Jobs and we already know, you know, like we're that sure. we're in the user yeah. interface kind of thing. Like we sh- we know already. So we're, we're providing what's best for the church, but then we haven't really been asking the right questions Yeah. Uh, either. And also I want to bring up too, in our, in, in our setting, uh, 
coming from an Asian background, uh, ethnic church, like three yeah. congregations, English, uh, Mandarin, uh, Cantonese yeah. as well. Like yeah. that, the answer to that question might vary within each congregation. Yeah. Uh, if we asked the question of like, you know, if we were, uh, if LLC were not to exist today, like what would people miss the most? And I think each, yeah. which complicates right. it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Right. I'm just saying right. it complicates the equation. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think there are certain things that, you know, can't be drawn in terms of a parallel of a profit seeking business versus a nonprofit um, kind of like people service oriented organization. Right. I mean, there are different goals. Like at the end of the day, Apple's trying to make a profit. Right. <laughs> Google's trying to make a profit. And part of their source to profit is like, do we have a solution that people would pay for? You know, because they're paying to not be really disappointed by the non-existent of this product, non-existence of this product, right? Whereas in the church, I'm not sure there is as much of a I don't know what the parallel is, right? Like what is the participation of what is the participation of the church that signals that we are serving a a need or we're you know blessing them in a way that resonates deeply with them that um, they want to partner in right if it's like voting with your dollars as a you know as a business then it's like Hey, I like what you're doing. I want to buy a product because it serves a need that I have. But if it's a church, it's like, okay, we're doing something, right? We're doing Sunday service. We're doing ministries, et cetera, et cetera. What is the participation on the flip side of that as a consumer, which is like a dirty word in, <laughs> when you're yeah. talking about like church, you don't want to be a, con a consumer church or whatever, right? But like as a part of the community, what is your um paradigm of engagement of investment of showing yeah that lc is you know an important part of of their paradigm of their life i, I found it helpful uh, in the past and even now uh, as you mentioned about like uh, what do people need and what are their wants and if they feel like they're missing something then they're missing something that they need and what's yeah. fascinating with the gospel is that our understanding of spiritual deadness, mm -hmm. I think that throws a wrench into whatever plans I've tried to make, you know, in sure. the past of thinking uh, like, and, it, and it's actually the hardest, one of the hardest things to do is being in the process of helping people realize what they need. Like when you're spiritually dead, biblically speaking, we don't know that we're dead. So we don't know mm -hmm. what we need, even mm -hmm. though we feel like there's a gap uh, and there might be something missing, but at the same time, we don't, like when we go on the streets, like, well, what do you think? What do you need today? Like most people might not say I need the gospel, you yeah. know, and then, and then whereas the church tries to put it in a package and that's what we're presenting. Yeah. But that, yeah. I, what, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the church has something very much to give in terms of the gospel, in terms of the, you know, Jesus, in terms of the fulfillment of our, of our being and understanding and purpose of life. But I, I think the challenge is how do we uh, help translate that into our culture? Right. Into right. helping people understand like, Hey, you, you might be explaining your needs in this way, but this is what, actually what it means. Yeah. Uh, and us being brave and courageous in that aspect, yeah. but that's what pushes back against our Canadian culture. 
right? And maybe our Asian culture of face as well and the complexities of that and that could go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think you touch on a really good point, which is that at the end of the day, um, that necessity, there are not that many things, right? I, I think that, um, and part of this problem kind of drives my cynicism around the, the culture of business, right? But if you look at, if you, if you take any, any large corporation or any profit-seeking business, a, lot, a large part of the marketing dollars, the advertisement dollars, is to try and create a sense of longing and their product is able to fill that longing. Right. Mm. But I mean, is that biblical? You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, are we content in God? Do we need, do we need the next iPhone? (laughs) Like they might have product market fit, but like, is that necessary? Or is that, is that just kind of adding to the noise of the world? Not to say that like the world's not better off with the technology that iPhone has Right. You know what I mean? Like the first smartphone was like, <laughs> I can have maps on my phone or like whatever. Right. But uh, I, I wrestle with that because. Uh, it, uh, so much of the cycle of like everyday business feels like you're trying to drum up desire in people's lives just so that you can serve them so you can benefit. And it's not truly to serve them. And I think the church has a unique role in being able to point, you know, what you're saying, right? To point them to the fact that there is only one thing that will fill that void in their heart. There's only one source of living water Mm. where you will not grow thirsty anymore, right? Mm. And that's Jesus. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so powerful. I think that's like the church's superpower. Yeah. That's like the unfair advantage, right? Like, which is like another word that we kind of use in the industry of like, what's this company's unfair advantage? What can we do that no one else can do or whatever, right? But like, I think that's the church's unfair, unfair advantage is like we tap into the one true God that fills a need that nothing else in the world can. And I think that's that's so beautiful. I don't think we always do a best job, the best job of like translating that back, but that's my rant. Wow. I I love that. Did you say something along the lines of Jesus is our unfair advantage? That's really good. Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) We're going to quote that. Sorry. I just blacked out. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to quote that for sure. That's that's, that's amazing. Hey, Aaron, I think our conversation has to come to a close. Sooner or later, even though I'm right. having such a good conversation with you. Oh, I thought we just I felt like we just got started. Yeah, I felt like it felt, felt like it did too. But the thing is too, I, I think we're going to have to have you back. Because there's a whole <laughs> bunch of other things. Honestly, there are a whole bunch of other things I wanted to ask you in terms of more. We're touching on discipleship, but in terms of marriage and family and all that, like we, sure, that's going to be another four hours <laughs> of a conversation. Good, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. But hey, th- thanks for having this conversation with me. I really do yeah. look forward to uh, the next one. Yeah, wait, wait. I'm gonna, I'll drop you with one last thing. Yeah. In terms of, I just feel like we're on that thread of uh, asking people what they need. And to your point, I don't think we should always be like 
we shouldn't over rotate to that. There's another, you know, quote that we kind of throw around, which is if, if they asked, if Henry Ford asked people what they wanted, it would be faster horses. Right. Right. So I think there's some part of discernment, some part of leadership that the church is in a unique place to, to fill, um, which is a good thing. Anyways, that's it. You know what? That actually gets me going again. Like, because <laughs> the thing is, like, not what, not everything we want is necessarily what's best for us. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. So, so I think what you just spoke on there is is very true. And and we didn't even. I mean, we talked about spiritual deadness a little bit, but there's an aspect too of you know our, our hearts and our human desires. Like, is what we naturally desire naturally good? Mm. And that, that's a really big question and big topic. So even yeah. what we're yearning for, uh, uh, we have to measure that against, of course, scripture, but also I, I believe that's what biblical community is about. There've been numerous times on our leadership where I've said something crazy and out there and, and then you, you know, someone might not say that's crazy and out there, but like in some sense, they're like, you know what, let's just hold back a little bit. Right. And, as a, and I think as a community, we affirm and also correct each other. I think that's the, that's the beauty of church. And that's, mm-hmm. a, and it, whereas if I was by myself and I siloed myself and, you know, that's where dangerous things happen when people silo themselves out in a farm and grow a community. That's well, I won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Historically speaking, bad things have happened. Uh, I think that's a fair statement to say. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, we'll end. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the next one. Yeah. I appreciate you, Aaron. All right. Take care, Doug. Well, that was my conversation with Aaron Ma, and I hope that there were parts that spoke to you and resonated with you. As we often say, the goal of these conversations isn't so much of saying this is the only way to live or that by some means or some way we're experts in living life. But the goal and the prayer is that perhaps God would stir up some thoughts in your hearts and to move you into creativity and to make you to become more like Jesus. Well, that's all we have for today. We have a new episode every two weeks on the Wednesday, and I hope you'll be able to tune in when I have my conversation with Anthony Ma, Hosea Chung, and Jocelyn Lee. We're the co-founders of a Vancouver-based Christian apparel brand, Rise and Do. They're committed to making durable, high-quality clothing for you to wear your faith boldly. They're designed in Canada, and their products are made to last. Well, they share the story of how they met and how the company started, their passion for helping people live out and be proud of their faith, and how faith is such an integral part to their business. They'll also share with us their thoughts on entrepreneurship. Well, thanks for listening. Bye for now.